0: to part four of our pod series this month called Remembering Joplin. On this episode, we got the pleasure of talking with Joplin's Emergency Management Director, Keith Stammer, to hear about what's involved in coordinating a massive recovery event. This pod series contains sensitive subject matter regarding the aftermath of the Joplin tornado. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on to the interview Remembering Joplin, an emergency management perspective. On this installment of Remembering Joplin, we have a very special guest with us today, the Joplin Emergency Manager Director, Keith Stammer. Keith, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so very much for inviting me. I appreciate it.
0: No problem. Yeah, we you, your name has come up uh, quite often in high praise, especially from Gary Bandy. We got a chance to oh. I- interview <laughs> him, and he speaks totally highly of your work and all the uh, wow. you know, things you have done. Well, and...
1: <laughs> that, that's high praise indeed coming from Gary. I have known Gary from a long time ago. I used to be the emergency management director in Lebeck County. And oh. I knew him when he was in Parsons on the radio station.
0: Oh, wow. Well, my, did, my, my, yeah. co- my cohort, Corey, here used to work with Gary as well. Corey, when did you work with Gary? Yes.
2: Uh, from the you know, late 90s to mid-2005-ish there at KSM.
1: Joplin. Yeah. yeah. yeah you, you, I heard your podcast, and you guys mentioned that 2000 tornado in Parsons. Mm-hmm. I was the emergency manager at that time, and I was up there for like five days. So wow. it was very interesting to hear your comments.
0: Wow, that that is amazing. Well, I want—I mean, I—I I know this is eight years ago, and we've had—I mean, at the time we're recording this, we've had some pretty rough weather going along in Southwest Missouri. But uh, going yes. back to eight years ago, I would like for you to tell us and our listeners, as an emergency manager director, when these uh-huh. when these storms uh, come on, you know, like we when that happened or whatever, what what do you do? What is your job at that point when disasters start happening? What do you do?
1: Well, we went under a tornado watch about one thirty that Sunday afternoon. So I came down to the emergency operations center, fired up my computers and uh, radios and television, went around, and checked with the dispatch. They're just around the corner from me and uh, just started monitoring things. I was visiting with the weather service and we were watching the storms and trying to figure out what was going on. Uh, We actually had one come our direction and then kind of go north of us. And we thought, well, okay, then we're in the clear. And then all of a sudden we had this particular one pop up. Uh, One meteorologist told me that uh, he watched the radar signatures and there was like a couple storms that combined out on the far west end. And by the time they combined to when we started to have a tornado signature was something like less than a minute.
0: Oh, yeah, that thing wrapped up fast.
1: Yeah, it did. It started off as an EF-0 and worked its way across the uh, city up to an EF-5 and about three-quarters of a mile wide, its widest point, six miles long. And then it turned right and went down into Newton County and down toward Diamond, Missouri, about 17 miles. My job uh, here in Joplin, when that happens, is to manage the emergency operations center. Okay. Uh, I call in all the different resources, police, fire, ambulance, health department, uh, city officials, government officials, uh, county, and health, uh, whoever else we need. And we kind of meet together face-to-face and set up a unified command and per the incident command system. And then we start deciding where where the problems are and where we need resources. So I see. that's what we did for quite a while.
0: Oh, I, I bet. And, and, I mean, are you uh, part of organizing Red Cross as well?
1: Well, we work with Red Cross. We have a Community Organizations Active in Disaster, a COAD, that are organizations like the Red Cross, the Salvation Army, uh, several health organizations, both local, state, and federal, that deal with people with moderate and low incomes and those who need special needs attention. They're all part and parcel of that. Uh, that particular group then stood up what we call the Long-Term Recovery Committee, which is an even broader group of not only just those who are interested in volunteering, but also government agencies, city agencies, uh, churches, anybody that wants to help with a recovery and particularly a rebuilding effort. At one time, that LTRC had as many as 80 different organizations and about 140 members to it at its height.
0: Wow. Wow. And you're in charge of all of that.
1: Well, I sort of supervised that. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know how much there is being in charge of those kind of things. But <laughs> my job really is my job really is coordination. Somebody said, in simple terms, what do you do? And I said, well, honestly, I uh, go find somebody and who has a need, and I lead them by the hands of somebody who has a resource and say, you two need to talk to each other. And that's, that's pretty awesome. much what we did. We went that first week from um, Sunday through Friday night 24-7. And then that Friday night we shut down about seven p.m. And then the next morning we fired up at seven a.m. and ran seven a to seven p for six weeks straight. After
0: that, six weeks straight. Wow. Yeah, because it that was thing crazy. Yeah, that because that, that thing came through was about five forty one. Corey, was it or something like that? About somewhere around in there. And then at that yeah, point... yeah, plus or
1: minus depending on where you live. Yes.
0: Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, 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 we interviewed on the on our second uh, installment, uh, my sister-in-law, my, my wife and, uh, her family lived in Joplin. And fortunately, oh, okay. um, uh, uh, Phyllis, my sister-in-law, she lived just north of I-4, uh, no, south of I-44. So fortunately she south was spared. Okay. Um, yeah. but, uh, but she said that she was at, uh, her mother's house, her, uh, my mother-in-law had passed away like three weeks before and they were at her house, which is, yeah, uh, where is it, Sergeant and Fourth? I mean, it's pretty much north. Yes. And she said that, it that took about, yes. yeah, about five hours to try to figure out how to get back to her house, which should have taken like twenty minutes.
2: Uh, yeah, it
1: was pretty amazing. Uh, the amount of debris in the roads was just phenomenal. One of the. Um, uh, news, i sorry, one of the media people that was there said that normally, whenever they go to a scene to take photographs of a tornado, they'll find the largest debris pile they can. And then the various media companies will take turns standing their reporter in front of that debris pile and giving the report. And they said, We showed up here and there was literally just miles of debris pile. So
0: I can't, uh, I can't I remember, imagine.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, an interesting thing about this is is when you were traveling down the road, I got called. This was Sunday, Tuesday morning. CNN wanted to do an on site interview, and I said, Well, fine. And they told me where they were, and I know where that is. I couldn't find it. Oh, wow. Uh, it wasn't so much that there was a huge amount of debris pile, but all of your markers were gone. There were no street signs. You know, you usually like drive south for a few blocks until you come to that particular service station and make a right hand turn and then go to that particular uh, doctor's office and make a left hand turn. Right. None of that was there. None of that was there.
2: And that just gives Uh, you a sinking feeling in your heart.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So finally, I figured out where I was. I got my GPS out, looked at it, and I'd driven by him by about 150 feet. So I had to back up and then look up a hill between two debris piles and said, oh, there you are on top of the hill and then drove up to where they were. It was really disconcerting. That
0: I, See, I can't imagine that. But but what you just said is something Phyllis said. She said, uh, you know, like if you go there, all you don't know where you're at. You know you're in Joplin, but there's no landmarks. There's nothing. You can't yes. tell what street you're on. And that's, yeah. like you said, Corey, it's got to be just your heart's just got to sink because, you know, this town you've lived in and grew up, and now a portion of it is just simply not there anymore.
1: You know, one of the defining moments, I think, for many people, because I heard this statement so many times, uh, Joplin is a city of trees. They're everywhere. And when you stand on Main Street and look back to the west on 26, you know that St. John's Hospital is back there a couple miles to the west, but you can't see it from the buildings and you can't see it from the trees. Oh, okay. And I can't tell you how many people who told me they stood at Main and 26 and looked back to the west. And suddenly realized that they should not be able to see St. John's Hospital. Wow. Wow. And it was just a clear shot all the way back there. And that's when it really hit home to them as to how much damage there actually was. My, uh, my you know, goodness. numbers, for whatever numbers are worth, uh, we ended up with 3 million cubic yards of debris. I mm-hmm. went back and looked, and you remember when the Twin Towers went down on 9 11? Mm hmm. And I saw I saw estimates of upwards of six hundred thousand cubic yards of debris. We had three million. This was five times as much debris. Oh my As gosh. what there was at, at, at the Twin Towers. We filled up literally. We filled up three construction and demolition landfills with material.
0: And so, so w- w- when they do excavate all all the the rubbish and stuff, they just put it in a landfill. Is that where all that goes?
1: Well, you know, per FEMA, and uh, they did exactly right. You have they have a chart, and you have to separate out the white goods like uh, you know washing machines and refrigerators. You have to separate all electrical items out, hazardous materials, uh, construction goods like you know, boards and wall board and that type of thing. They have about five different categories, and then they have these trucks that come along uh, with these big claws on them that reach over and grab a pile and pick it up and drop it in the back of the truck. And so they'd come by and pick up all the construction debris, and they'd have somebody come along and pick up all the white goods. And somebody else would come by and pick up all of the, uh, the metal uh, that was there, and they took them to different locations. Some of it was salvaged out, but the vast majority of it was just hauled off to an appropriate certified landfill and buried out there where it needed to be.
0: See, that that's just such an, um, an amazing major... Uh, effort, organization effort. I mean, you have to be able to, you know, like FEMA's great. I mean, they they have to know exactly yeah. what to do in, and and do it in a timely manner. How long did that take to to get it back? Oh, my.
1: It, actually, it only took a matter of a, few, of a couple of months. I don't remember the exact number of days, but we had a financial incentive. Usually FEMA will come in and say, in this kind of situation, they'll do a 25-35 split, which means that FEMA will pay for 75% sorry, 25, 75 split, they will do 75% of the cost of a uh, of the recovery effort in terms of gathering up all that material, and the city would pay 25. Well, they came in where half of it was and 1.5 million cubic yards, which was the worst-hit area, called the expedited debris removal area, and they offered us a 90-10 split if we got it done by a certain date. We got oh. it done one day short of that.
0: Oh, wow. <laughs>
1: well,
0: no, yeah. that's good. And then the
1: other... Yeah, it was. And then the other one and a half million cubic yards took several more months to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, We had done this in 2007 when we had an ice storm come through and we had a huge amount of vegetated debris. And the city operated as the supervisors of the equipment that we hired to come in and pick up the vegetated debris, and we watched over it being burned properly and that type of thing. But, of course, when this one happened in 2011, the uh, Corps of Engineers actually stepped in and acted as the supervising agency, and we were quite pleased to step back and let them bring their expertise in and look after that management of the debris.
0: Oh, that's amazing. I don't see how you keep all this straight. I mean, you you've got a big job <laughs> of coordinating everything. It's just that that's so commendable. <laughs> I
1: well, don't know. I appreciate that. you know it it really helps to do the the drills, the exercises. We do anywhere from five to nine exercises a year. Some of them are tabletop. Some of them are uh, uh, full functional where we get all the toys out and play with them. Uh-huh. Uh, some of them are online anymore. What happened to help a lot, honestly, was the Wednesday before the Joplin tornado. We had participated in a half-day full-scale exercise on the New Madrid fault. Oh wow! And had pretended that yeah had pretended that the New Madrid fault had fallen, and uh, this was a two-state uh, uh, function, and along along with uh, two FEMA regions, and so we had everybody in the county that needed to be in the EOC were there for four hours. Little did we know, just a few days later, we were all going to meet again under different circumstances.
0: Yeah, I bet. So that,
1: you know, that old thing about your pra- you play like you practice is really true, and it worked out well for us. Uh, yeah. Uh, the, the trick here is, is I think somebody said, how come you guys got along so well? And I said, well, to be honest, we got along well before the tornado. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the uh, police, yeah, it helps. Police, fire, ambulance, public works, health departments, uh, units of government, by and large. We all got along with each other. We responded to each other's disasters, uh, not only within this county, but other counties and even across state lines. So there were a lot of people that showed up uh, that I knew. We have a uh, something called SMISO, the Southwest Missouri Emergency Support Organization. That's all of us in emergency services that in Southwest Missouri we meet quarterly. Uh, we have a Four Corners Emergency Management Group for those of us in Kansas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Missouri that border together. We meet quarterly and have an annual convention. Uh, as I said, we have a co-ad that meets on a quarterly basis. Uh, we had a medical subcommittee that met on a quarterly basis. So it, it, these were all people that we knew and we saw on a, on a regular basis. So when they offered to come, of course, we were quite willing. Uh, Little did we know that we did up with 435 different agencies involving some 5,000 response personnel. That was pretty interesting. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Well – We we actually – I'm sorry. No, no, no. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, yeah, you know, the statistics are pretty straightforward. 161 dead, 1,200-plus wounded to one degree or another. 17,000 people displaced, 9,700 structures were destroyed or damaged to one extent or another, uh, $2.8 billion worth of damage. Uh, mm. the, the volunteer organization effort was simply amazing. Uh, in the end, uh, after some, oh, three four years, we had a total of 175,000 separately registered volunteers that came in to help. That's amazing. Uh,
0: one of the
1: things yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty cool. One of the things that really helped us a lot was the faith-based organization. Mm-hmm. I have sung their praises every time. I, I don't know what, you know, if you know about those many people and for your listeners, practically every denomination in the United States has a disaster response and recovery arm. And they know each other, and they tend to specialize in certain areas. For example, the Seventh-day Adventists were very good about warehousing and volunteer coordination. Uh, Baptist churches were very good about initial response, chainsaws, and that type of thing, and were feeding. Uh, the Presbyterian Church was big on coming in after about six months and asking about uh, what are we going to do about housing for all these volunteers and helping to make sure that the response volunteers are all being taken care of. And uh, we had groups from all over that we have worked with together throughout the years. Um, this is my 26th year. Uh, so, you know, eight years, about 18 years I'd been in the business when this one happened eight years ago. And there were a lot of people that we've all been to with different uh, disasters and whatever else. I've been in... 12 now federally federally declared disasters, and that happened in my community, in my jurisdiction, plus others that we've traveled to. And that's not unusual. So, you know, when you show up on the scene and they go, hey, I know you, and I know you, and I know you, and we've kind of worked together, that's good. In fact, I told people in the first 36 hours of the disaster, there was not anyone who showed up in my EOC, either at the department level, had a, a level or agency level whom I had not already met. Okay. And so yeah. after that, of course, people started changing out. But that first, first 36 hours, it was, you know, and, and I just put out the word, you know, come. And uh, those, because I knew those people would show up.
0: Yeah. And we're learning from a lot of our, of our interviews with people. I mean, people are coming from all over the country. Uh, they were. To yeah. help. And, and I think that... That that is so humanitarian. Our our third uh, podcast on remembering Joplin. We interviewed my employers, the Hughes Brothers, which uh, are are Mormon, and they actually went to branch, yes. uh, not branch. they went to Joplin about a couple of weeks afterwards, and just they did, and just helped and helped. I,
1: uh, yeah, I just think remember that phone call. We got a phone call from them, and they said, "Hey, this is the Latter Day Saints. We can put six hundred boots on the ground this coming weekend. Can you use us?"
0: Yes. Yes, we can. <laughs> and they
1: all showed up with, with, with shirts like so that they knew who they were and that we knew who they were. And we had a list of damaged areas and where debris uh, management needed to be done, and they just threw themselves into it. Of course, they'd lost their church here, and uh, oh. they, uh, they ended up building another one uh, eventually, uh, a very nice uh, facility that they have there. We were quite pleased to see them, and uh, that was very true of several different groups.
0: Well, and the humanitarian effort—that—that's what you know—that—that that gives us hope that in, in the world yeah. now that you know, people want to help people, and the and it's it just the the turnout and seeing—I mean, not even faith-based groups, just j- just people, people that have lived yeah. through this experience before in other places of the country, <laughs> coming to help. And uh, yes, it, in my opinion, I mean, it, it it took a while for my wife. I mean, we're based in Branson, and and I kept yeah. asking my wife, uh, it was like, "Do you want to go and see Joplin?" And she would say, "I'm not ready. I'm not ready yet." So about six months later, yeah. I finally took her there, and uh, you know, I mean, it it was the, the cleanup had already you know been in full gear by six months. Yeah, I think but, September.
1: But you could see the damage. Yeah. Oh yeah,
0: I took. You know, I one of th-
1: one things you talked about is that humanitarian help. Um, uh, locally, it was kind of funny. Uh, the health department. Uh, we were set up, we would had a, you remember the uh, the tornado of 2008, Mother's Day, there in Newton County, and uh, they were ready to do uh, tetanus shots and also inspections of, of restaurants, and our health department went to school on that. So when this happened in 2011, they were ready to hit the restaurants that a lost power. One of the things they didn't consider was the 40 different people that decided on their particular corner that they just needed to put out hot dogs and hamburgers for anybody that came by. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Helped. Yeah, the health department had to go by and say, could you at least keep everything on ice, please? You know, we want to keep the of them down. <laughs> well, that's the last thing and you then, want uh, is people
0: in distress and them then getting sick oh and food poisoning, you know.
1: Yeah. Uh, Tyson Foods showed up, and they said, where can we set up? We, we will serve food morning, afternoon, and evening. Of course, it was, you know, like chicken burritos in the morning and chicken sandwiches in the afternoon and chicken dinners in the evening. And chicken, yeah. And chicken. So I, I said, sure, right out front of the emergency operations center, I said, I only have one requirement, and that is you feed whoever shows up. And they said, not a problem. We are here to help whomever.
0: Awesome. And
1: so, you know, volunteers showed up, local citizens, Uh, We had a close-by nursing home, said, sure, come on over. Uh, The Baptist Church called. They had a mobile kitchen. They said they could do 1,200 meals a day for two weeks. I said, you betcha. And so, we yeah, we set them up to help with that. So there was a lot of that type of effort. One of the things that worked out well um, was this warehousing effort that was initially organized uh, for us and with us uh, by the Seventh-day Adventists. We established a master warehouse where we had People and companies wherever bring the materials. And then we had five churches in town that were uh, classified as mega churches, 1,000 population, 1,000 membership or more, that acted as our pods, our points of distribution. So they would, those five churches would come to the master warehouse, pick up diapers, claws, you know, cleaning supplies, water or whatever, take it back to their churches, and then they subdistributed to about another 20 church facilities all the way around the city. And so that's kind of how we distributed our stuff over the next several weeks. And you mentioned the Red Cross earlier, and they were a great help to us because after a while, you pretty well have met everybody's needs, and you're thinking, okay, maybe we're getting taken advantage of and some of this material being distributed. So the rest, Red Cross stepped in and said, no problem, we'll just badge them. Oh. And so from that point, we said, if you want if you want services, if you need supplies, we're More than happy to give them to you, but please go to the Red Cross setup first. They'll uh, get your forms filled out. They'll get your photograph. They'll get a badge and give you that badge. And then you can go to any of these distribution centers, and you can present that badge. And we know that you are a bona fide person in need, and we'll just give you whatever it is that you need, uh, you know, for your family or for that type of thing. And that worked out real well.
0: That's perfect.
1: Uh, Yeah. Another thing that we did that worked out well was we formed a march. We've done this before, a multi-agency resource center. And what that is was um, the uh, uh, Red Cross actually helped with this as well. And uh, Debbie uh, Mead was the person that was in charge at that time. And uh, they found a large building and they set up a multi-services group there, multi-agency resource center. So Like uh, people that wanted to offer legal services, we gave them a booth. People that wanted to offer mental health services, we gave them a booth. Somebody that wanted to help with the uh, uh, distribution of food, they got a booth. In the 2007, uh, no, I'm sorry, in the 2008 tornado in Newton County, uh, we had a Buddhist organization that showed up. And they said they've been given a large donation, and they could hand out $500 a family, but they wanted to make sure it was qualified people. So they had set up a mark there in Newton County, and they said, well, come and sit at our table, and we guarantee that whoever comes to your particular booth is somebody that we know is in need. So along comes the 2011 tornado. This same Buddhist group shows up. They've got really nice backpacks full, crammed full of disaster supplies, tarps, gloves, hard hats glasses. I mean, everything you need to work around your house or your property. And they said, hi, we're back. And said, yeah, we'd love to have you. And we set them up at the a booth and they just had people come through and they were handed out disaster backpacks. And so that, that's just an example of those kind of things that you can do with centralization and, the, and so that we could have people who had those needs. They could just go into the building and just walk around the perimeter and choose whatever services they needed.
0: That is so amazing to me. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't even think about that, I mean to have everybody set up in one location that they that you know yeah. people can come in and get it's, what they need,
1: yeah, it's pretty amazing um and we you know it's not that we've thought of this ourselves, we've had other disasters and have learned from that. Our city manager said as soon as this happened, every department, police fire, legal medical, whatever, call your compadres in another city that's already had this kind of problem and ask them for lessons learned,
0: ah good idea. And so
1: there were some yeah, there were some things that we picked up from that. One quick example, the 2008 Mother's Day tornado in Newton County again, the health department knew that they needed to hand out tetanus shots. So they immediately went to the health department, set up with the serum, set up their people to just give out tetanus shots and nobody came. Or hardly anyone came because oh. pe- people were staying at their property they didn't. They didn't want to take a chance on somebody looting it. They wanted to make uh, sure that they sort, sorted through all the property. Um, they and mean, you know, a lot of people. That's all they have. So exactly. There were people that were lit, living in destroyed houses. You know, the bedroom was not destroyed, so they were sleeping there without water and uh, without electricity. But they were they were trying to get their their lives back together. So that health department started forming what's called a strike team and uh, they would get a a nurse and maybe a law enforcement officer uh, to go along with them and a couple others, and they just kind of went from property to property, and they ended up handing out about 850 tetanus shots. So when the 2011 tornado happened, our health department said, oh, well, we understand how this is going to work. So they immediately started forming their own strike teams of medical professionals, and they went around to all of these houses, all of these various scenes that we had, and said... Do you need a tetanus shot? My my joke there was that if somebody in a white coat with a needle said, "Do you need a tetanus shot?" You need to immediately say yes or no because otherwise you got one. Oh yeah, <laughs> and so yeah, so we handed out seventeen thousand tetanus shots. See that that's Basically, perfect. Yep. Yeah, based on lessons learned, that people aren't going to come to you in that situation. You've got to go to them. Well,
0: and that, that's something that you know, I as as people not experiencing that firsthand is something the Hughes brothers said on our last podcast was uh, the, there's there's a smell I mean when, when the tornado destroys the gas and 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 there's yeah. probably fires and stuff there's an odor there and there's just yeah. a breeding for diseases mold and and everything so you, you you know the if you don't think about that you don't realize that there's really a lot of danger after the fact
1: there is and particularly true here in Joplin since you've mentioned that mm-hmm. this is an old mining town uh, Kansas Oklahoma and Missouri here at one point the lead and zinc mines supplied almost all of the lead for world war 1 oh, and wow. there are huge there were huge huge piles of crushed rock called tailings that they used whenever they that just left out in like Miami, Oklahoma, and Southeast Kansas, and over here in Missouri. There used to be huge mounds of these things, Jet piles. thousands and thousands of tons. Well, yeah. over the years, cities have thought, hey, we can make roads out of that stuff. So they've gone in there and picked all that up in trucks, brought them into town, spread them on the roads, and then put them in yards for fill for houses, and then have covered them over. Okay, that's all right. Well, along comes the Joplin tornado, and it starts ripping up roads and ripping up yards and ripping out foundations and exposing this lead-contaminated debris.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. Oh,
1: my. Yeah. So the EPA comes in and says, oh, boy. So they started doing some testing, and fortunately, it was not a threat. To our first responders. Good. Uh, they did. They did some air quality testing. They said they found the dirtiest, nastiest-looking guy that they could. Who was obviously enjoying his his digging work. And they put a monitor on him for 24 hours. And they said it's no worse than what they thought than what they found in Greenfield, uh, uh, Kansas. And uh, that uh, when that happened, but what it did for us though was there were several million dollars worth of grants that came to us from the federal government. For remediation of those yards, uh, the only way you can either you can you can handle that lead-infused uh, rock is either dig it all out and replace it, or cover it. So on the streets, you can pave over it. In the yards, depending on how much lead, lead there was, they would put back six inches, eight, 12 inches, or 18 inches of topsoil in order to cover back to cover that back over. And, you know, keep it buried so it's not a health and hazard problem to the citizens. That was something, you know, we thought, oh, really? This is going to be interesting. That was an ongoing effort for months afterwards to get all that remediated.
0: Oh, I bet. I mean, just from the from the real estate that that tornado, uh, just, uh, you know, just rearranged everything. Yeah, that, that would... yeah it really did. It uh, really did. I Sorry,
1: imagine. I can just I can just keep talking about stuff like this. Oh, that no,
0: talking. that's fine because this yeah. is a lot of information. You know, one, another yeah,
1: another thing that we found very interesting here was the the layout of the city. Um, think about it this way: Why do you live where you live? Okay, you know because the price was right. I like the community. It was close to work. It's close to schools. It's close to the recreation that I like. Uh, It's got a running trail. If you're elderly, it's close to my doctors. It's close to the pharmacy. Everybody has a whole wander list of reasons that they live where they live. Now bring in a giant scraper and scrape off a section of land three-quarters of a mile wide and six miles long and then expect people to go back in there and live. The first thing they do is look at you and say, why? Yeah. Yeah. Everything I ever valued is gone
0: Well, I wonder, do do you know how many, like, actually rebuilt or
1: moved? Do you have any figures on that? There was not as much rebuilding as we thought. Joplin traditionally has been a town that had more rental uh, uh, homes than owned homes. Hmm. And a lot of those homes in that area were, again, from the old mining days. So you might have a city block that would have 12 or even 16 little houses on it. They're gone. And so realtors came in and bought up the block and subdivided it into like maybe six or eight different subdivisions. But people were rather hesitant to go back in there. We had a lot of people – well, we had some people, put it that way, mm-hmm. uh, who were simply undervalued on insurance. I remember one example of an older couple. Uh, they had their house insured for $60,000, and it cost one hundred and twenty to rebuild.
0: Oh. So
1: their, their comment was, well, we'll take the money and go live with the kids. Yeah. Um, others, you know, others were saying, well, you know, yeah, we we lived in all these little bitty houses and whatever that were there, but uh, we'd really like to have more modern amenities. So the city did two different major surveys amongst the citizens and said, what do you want to see in this area out here? Do you want parks? Do you want industry? Do you want running trails? Do you want uh, – how do you envision this? And trying to figure out how some of this land can be repurposed and reused, it was almost like a blank slate. Uh, One of the things that drove some of that is that Joplin has a large moderate, uh, low and moderate income family uh, structure, which means that there's a great opportunity out there for federally subsidized housing for the low and moderate income people. But that takes time because you have to have jumped through a lot of regulations, both state and federal, to get those built according to spec. And the last thing we wanted to do was have people just throw stuff up. Uh, we had some people come in. They want to set up a bunch of traders in town. We said no. Uh, we had somebody come in that wanted to take all the plastic that we had taken, compress it into bricks, and use it to build uh, houses with. We said no. We had somebody come in and wanted to bring us a bunch of 40-foot traders, repaint them, and stack them up in some sort of geometric design and use that for housing. We said No. Uh, You people are trying to help here, but all you're really doing is is setting up something that advantages you, and then you're leaving.
0: Right. one of the rules,
1: you know, one of the rules of emergency management is all disasters are local. They start local, and they end local. There Mm -hmm. may be all kinds of help in between, but at some point, all that help goes away, and you're still there. Right. So you have to to grab onto immediately – the as best you can, uh, some type of of control of what's going on. One good example of what we did was, we stated that no plumber or electrician or roofer or contractor may work within the city of limits of Joplin without a license. And then we dropped the cost of the license next to nothing. Uh-huh. I think it was like five bucks oh, wow. or something like that. The whole point was was to force people to show up at the licensing agency. And prove their bona fides. Rather, and there was a, an attempt to try and control the charlatans that were that would normally you know follow this kind of thing, almost like wolves following a herd, and uh, that would come into a city and take people's money and then go away. We advertised unless they have a city certificate, they're not allowed to build. So if somebody comes up and says, Hi, I'm Joe Blue ripping and I'm here to help, and I by the way, I need half down. Uh, for this roofing job, and we'll be in Tuesday to take care of that. You force them to show you the license, and if they don't have have a license, call nine one one.
0: Exactly. Exactly. We'll out
1: there to take care of that. Yeah. Yeah, and we unfortunately, less. But,
0: you know, I was going to say, unfortunately, that's the flip side of of disasters. You have all these people oh, trying to do the right thing, but you always have the, what what I call the riffraff on the other side, yeah. trying to take advantage of people that when they, the, the looters, I mean, I'm sure yes. that the police department is way out there in full force, trying to keep well, everybody. Oh, yeah,
1: they were. We, we had 150 different police agencies of those 435 agencies, about 150 of them were law enforcement of some sort. Plus we called in the national guard. And,
2: oh, right. um,
1: uh, yeah, and we said, you know, feel free to bring your guns. And they said, excuse me? <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, our, our point here is we want a presence. So we basically had law enforcement or military staying on every other corner. Good. And that really discouraged a lot of people. <laughs> One quick example, yeah. we had a guy at a pickup, old beat-up pickup. He had a magnetic sign on either side that said construction. He was wearing a fluorescent vest and a hard hat, and the back was pickup. He had 6 window unit air conditioners. And our police department looked at him. And said, Uh huh. Right. Come oh. here. We need to talk to you. so yeah, He was just, he was just pulling out stuff that he could sell for scrap somewhere. Oh. And so we had a little bit of that, but not much. Uh, yeah. Another thing that we th- that you don't often think about is um, our animals. Pets. Oh, right. Um. My my standing joke here is that of all the apartment complexes that we had to go down, I swear that everybody that lived in an apartment had a pet cat. <laughs> and so we, you know, we had to go out and they. We put out traps every night to catch cats, you know, feral and domestic as well. Uh, we uh, our local um, uh, animal shelter did yeoman's work. They went around and worked with everybody. They would help pick up these animals. Uh, they took them to their shelter. Uh, they had interesting enough guys. Uh, we had people literally from all over the nation that wanted a rescue animal from the Joplin tornado. Really? So, yeah, really did. And so the local shelter said, well, here, they set up a uh, an adoption weekend on a Saturday and a Sunday, and they advertised it wide and long and said, we have all these rescue animals. Because, you know, some of the animals got away from people. Honestly, there's some people that couldn't take an animal. I mean, when you have nothing... It's just you and the and the kids, and you have no clothing. You have nothing else. They can't handle it. They can't even take care of their own pets. Exactly. So they would turn them in. Yeah, they turned them into the shelter. So the shelter said, well, the the the, uh, the local uh, animal shelter said, let's have an adoption day. They adopted out every single animal that they had taken in from the uh, from the tornado. All the animals that they already had in house. And, you know, the, we're pretty smart about this. They reached out to the shelters in the surrounding cities and said, bring us your animals. And so some, we had, be, like, somebody showed up in California They said, we wanted to to get a rescue, uh, a dog from here. So, well, it's technically not a Joplin dog. It's a Web City dog, which Web City's right on the north end of Joplin. They said, from the perspective of California, it's the same thing.
0: Right, right, <laughs> so, right, right. Yeah.
1: So, they, you know, that was, that was a pretty nice deal. Um, by the same token, that being said, we had people walking the streets and snatching up any animal they could see and just assumed it was a rescue animal and took it. And uh-huh. they were so, like, one example was the Springfield, Missouri, uh, shelter over there. said so they started having people walking in with animals. They said, where are these coming from? They said, well, they're, they're Joplin dogs. Uh, they were obviously abandoned. So how do you know they were abandoned? Well, they're on the street. Lots of people's animals are on the street. Well, yeah. So then they started, yeah, they started picking those dogs up, bringing them back to Jop- Joplin, and, uh, you know, running the scans over to see if they were chipped, see what the caller had to say on them, that type of thing, trying to find the local owners and get them re- reunited. So that's kind of one of those things where we appreciated the volunteer efforts of the people that, uh, that really care about pets, but it was almost went to the other edge.
0: Uh, exactly. Exactly. And I guess and that's just the thing you got to just keep vigilant of. I mean, now, okay, are you in charge yeah. of it, the uh, social, social media part of the emergency manager?
1: Well, you know, we helped with that. Um, the uh, uh, Joplin has a full-time public information officer, Lynn Onspot. Hmm. She was here during that time. I, uh, my, my, here again, my joke on that, this literally happened. Um, she came into my office here in the emergency operations center, I've got an office off the side. She said, I need someplace to work. And I said, Lynn, sit right down here at my desk, and you can use this. Uh, I got it back 12 days later. <laughs> literally. Oh, wow. Uh, she, she set up a, a what's called a JIP, a Joint Information Center. So public, public information officers from the city, the county, uh, the Highway Patrol, uh, FEMA, American Red Cross, they all know each other. They understand the job. So they came in, set up fax machines, and they were the ones that were sending out the stuff. Uh, we had one person that worked full-time on the city Facebook site. And, you know, the social media thing here is, is something pretty simple, and yet it's something complicated and perhaps even scarier. Let me say this right up front. All you can do is manage your own message. You can't manage anybody else's message. We had some people pop up on Facebook and said, we know everything about the Joplin tornado. Let us tell you about it. Whether it was true or not, they were telling every story that came along. And so Lynn Onstott, our uh, PIO, spent many mornings down at KZRG radio on the south side of town doing rumor control. And she'd get on the radio and they'd say, well, we heard this. She said, no, that's not true at all. Well, what about this? Well, that's only partially true. And, you know, we learned a real hard lesson of that is that we would put out things that were factual and to the point and substantiated and authoritative. But that's all you can do. You can't make people um, tell the truth on other social media sites. You can't make them see your particular perspective. And I don't know that we were trying to control anybody. We were just trying to keep the noise down. Uh, exactly. And Keep everybody gui- guided in some sort of reasonable uh, way of doing things. Last night's tornado uh, that came through here, uh, we, uh, we were getting reports from one town on the north end uh, that they had catastrophic damage when it was over said none no they had a tornado go over the top of them but they were afraid, and they thought maybe that they did have a lot of damage, but once they got outside and started looking, they didn't. And so everybody has a unique perspective, and we learned that from the Joplin tornado. Here's these people telling a story about you know losing family members. Here's somebody telling a story about losing his or her particular business. Here's someone talking about losing the, the family homestead uh, that they've had people that have lived there for the last 130 years. Those kind of things each have their, they all have their own stories to tell, and from a city standpoint, from an emergency management standpoint, you kind of have to just let them tell their story, and you push forward and tell your own.
0: Yeah, and you know you, you have to, and the, and that's the one of the things that Corey and I are seeing from the from the actual weather coverage. The what what we do is you, yeah. you see a lot of these hacks out there, and we've been hearing a whole bunch of stuff. Like from a few sources, and then they say Corey, people were were trying to compare the Jefferson City tornado last night to the Joplin tornado. We're like, no, that's no. not even close. No. Yeah, and, no. and people people no. read these. I, I totally understand what you're saying, Keith. It's like you got to put everything in a perspective and only get information from the trusted sources, whether it be weather or you guys and the emergency manager. I mean, what yeah. the real thing is.
1: Yes, and you mentioned a very good point about weather. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that the National Weather Service did was they gave us an embedded meteorologist. They brought in a meteorologist and said, "Here he is. His job is to work with you morning, noon, and night, and until such time as, as you don't need him, this is your own personal meteorologist." Perfect. So we had, yeah, we had, um, we would have a council of war meeting at seven a.m. And uh, about everything that we were actually, what would happen is, is per the incident command system, we had a planning session all night long. Tomorrow's goals are, here's the equipment we need. Here's the uh, map layout. Uh, here is a list of food places. Here's where the porta potties are. Here's where the uh, radio frequencies are, cell phone numbers. And they put that together in a package. And then at 7 a.m., we would hand that out to the various agencies and department heads. And then we'd ask for our reports from everybody, and our meteorologists would give a report on the, today's, on the day's weather. And then we'd come back together at 7 p.m. and do a summary of what happened, and he would give us a summary of what was happening that night. So this happened on Sunday, and they came in with their meteorologists. And they said, Tuesday night's going to be a problem. You're looking at 70-mile-an-hour-plus winds. Wow. And we said, wonderful. we got all this debris laying out there. The last thing we want is shingles throwing, you know, flying through. So this is the first and only time I was able to do a pre-planned tornado siren activation. Uh, they, they told us that the storms were going to come in uh, approximately, I, I don't remember exactly, roughly 8, 9 o'clock, something like that. So police and fire that evening went through the entire area with their loudspeakers and said, high winds are coming, you need to clear out of here. We advertised on the television and radio and then at the agreed-upon time when the meteorologist told us the winds were coming, we hit the sirens, and everybody knew we were going to do it. Okay. And uh, the idea was to get people cleared out of there, and, and it worked. We did not have any injuries that night because, my word, there was sure a lot of loose debris around that that wind could have picked up and injured somebody.
0: Oh, yes. I mean, anything. I mean, we're, we're even seeing, you know, we saw su- such pictures. It, it just marvels me the— that what mother nature can do. I mean, taking, you know, a straw and then impaling yeah. a stop sign and just perfectly, yeah. it's like, wow, I, there's, yeah. <laughs> so, so when, when, yeah. Like, and, yeah.
1: And, and not only that, but things that are left, uh, yes. you know, I remember standing, I remember standing on a house foundation that had been smoothed. And by that, I mean you could – I was standing on the concrete block foundation. There was no house there whatsoever. You could look below the level of the concrete, and all the air conditioning ducts were still there. The house next to it was half destroyed, but you could see into a bedroom, and a closet door was open, and the clothes were hung as neat as could be with about a one-inch spacing between each of the shirts and each of the pair of pants in that closet, and they'd never been touched.
0: That's amazing. It,
1: it just, yeah, I can't figure this out as to what gets hit and what does not. And, you know, maybe that's for the best. <laughs>
2: uh,
0: yeah. yeah. Hey, I, hey Keith,
2: uh, let's talk about uh, last night's storms again for our, our listeners. Yes. Today okay. is, you know, May 23rd. Uh, we had yes. some storms blow through. Joplin in Jasper County was under a tornado warning. Uh, we were. Uh, any other day in – the 365 days of the year, for there to be a tornado, that is the worst day for Joplin to be under a tornado warning. What was the anxiety like in that area? It was pretty
1: high. Uh, you know, we've done that for the last seven years. We said, okay, it's coming. It's the 22nd. All right, you know, it's it's passed. That's good. Here we have the eighth year, and they start throwing fits on Monday, and uh, and then on and then of course yesterday on Wednesday they declare a PDS and uh uh on us for for a tornado watch potentially dangerous situation and 95 percent probability and greater uh we immediately went into defensive mode had a meeting at one o'clock where there was a conference call with the weather service and after that we had a meeting amongst all of our response agency personnel and kind of mapped out okay what happens if this hits tonight uh who's going to do what how are we going to do this who's in charge of communications and uh, if it's not us and one of our neighbors, then how are we going to get information to them? And now how are we going to offer up resources? People started bringing in uh, extra. Uh, fire department put, uh, uh, they've got a water rescue team. They put them on standby. Police department brought in extra personnel. Our dispatch center had people stay over and brought in extra personnel. Uh, the Joplin Dispatch Center and then the county dispatch center over in Carthage used the same computer uh, software. So and they're on there and they talk back and forth by radio. So we had that set up that if the 911 went down in one area, it could be picked up by the other. We tried to do as much you know preparation work as we could, but then after a while, all you can do is just sit there and watch it. And so take us inside your truck. emergency
2: operations center. What's it like for those who haven't seen it? I have not been able to see seen it. You have monitors everywhere, I'm sure. Yeah. Or the radar, or you're oh, watching yeah. radar. No, and,
1: and honestly, that one of the things that's changed so much in the last eight years is it is, as you say, monitors. Uh, I mentioned having that EOC face to face, and yes, we did that. And yes, there is a there's a need for that. But in the years since, uh, we've moved to web EOC, which is an online incident command system. So that you can sign in as the emergency manager, you can sign in as the uh, uh, as the logistics officer or as the planning officer or as the public information officer, and operate from the auspices uh, uh, of your own office. And uh, so we do a lot of that kind of stuff online. So we had uh, we had a probably half a dozen people in the EOC. So eight years ago, we would have had three or four times that number of people in the emergency operations center because we have so much better communications for online. Wow! So that really made a big difference. But we're watching the radars. We're watching the National Weather Service on NWS chat. Uh, we watch the uh, the web EOC. Uh, we've got our radios running. We're watching television from local television stations. We're watching the Weather Channel. And, uh, you know, we're trying to pick up all the sources that we think that our citizens are watching as well so that we can kind of know what they are seeing whenever they happen to call up and say, hey, I just saw on TV that. Yeah, we saw that as well. and So we can talk about that a little bit. We send uh, communications out by email, by text message, uh, by online posting. We have Twitter. We have a uh, Facebook page. uh, And we all pick that information up. One of the things that we've learned in communicating information is that, number one, there is no big red button that you could push, which warns everyone every time about everything. Mm -hmm. And so you've got sirens, you've got no weather radios, you've got apps to your cell phone, uh, you have television, you have radio, uh, uh, commercial radio stations. Uh, you have various means of getting the word out to people, and you need to be able to employ all of those means of communication.
2: Well, heading back, heading back uh, eight years ago to that Sunday afternoon, yeah. wow. you uh, a tornado watch was was issued about one thirty. Is that when you yeah. you activate your team when you go in? Are are you in for that whole time, or do you wait till something actually starts turning? What was your day? What was your afternoon like that day?
1: Well, let me put it this way. On average here in Joplin, we'll run about 25 uh, weather watches a year, Mm -hmm. 18 of them for severe thunderstorms, and um, about seven of them for tornadoes. Of those 25 times that we go on weather watch, we will activate the sirens an average of once. Right. So roughly 4% of the time we get to push the button, 96% of the time we don't. So when I went in that afternoon, I'm thinking, okay, it's another tornado watch, just like all the others that have gone before. So I go in at way 1.30, uh, notify people that, hey, you know, EOC's open, we have a tornado watch, everybody be weather aware. And it wasn't until a little after 5 o'clock that we started getting reports of debris. In fact, I'll tell you, the one way that I knew that we really had a serious situation here in the EOC, uh, we actually turned on the sirens uh, based on radar imagery from the National Weather Service, but we still couldn't see it very well. And uh, the local television or radio station called and said, uh, uh, can we talk about sirens going on? And I said, sure. So I was talking to them about the sirens, and all of a sudden they quit talking. I looked at my stuffed phone and thought, well, that's rude. Why would you hang up on me? Hmm. And then I realized, oh, and my computers don't work, and my landlines don't work. And now we've got a problem. And so I ran out the back of the emergency operations center, and I could see the tornado, the wedge, moving away from us as it went west to east. Across the south side of the city, and uh, and that's when it hit me, and I thought, oh, this is not your normal EF one, EF zero kind of thing. This is something really big, really dangerous, and really devastating.
2: So you sounded those sirens, and the storm was probably still over in Kansas, right? In, in yeah, Cherokee we County, did. Or? We started.
1: Yeah, you know, we started. We started sounding them, uh, and actually, at it, it, you know Jasper County. Uh, runs right over to the kansas line Mm -hmm. so it is as that comes across over that way And we started getting reports from that west side is when we started activating sirens uh you know an interesting thing about sirens is is they're outdoor warning sirens they are designed to warn people who are out of doors to go indoors uh it's a big advantage if you're out on a running trail or you're out fishing or you're out playing golf the big disadvantage for sirens is all they do is make a noise. They don't tell you anything. They don't tell you what's happening. They don't tell you what you should do about it. So, you know, we preach and teach all the time. It means go inside. It means seek shelter, seek information. If you can get that message across to people, you gain something.
2: And unfortunately, there there were a lot of people outdoors that day.
1: Oh, there were a lot of people outdoors. The the big thing that really helped us in all honesty was um, that tornado struck the Joplin High School that evening. Because of the size of attendance that they had on high school graduation night, which was that evening, they had moved graduation over to Missouri Southern State University. Wow. Which was north of there. So instead of having several hundred people inside that Joplin school, there was no one in it.
2: Wow. That's and amazing that, that right made there. That a
1: huge difference. You know, and it's 535 in the evening, which is prime travel time. So if that had been a Monday evening, oh. they'd have caught all the traffic. Oh, but on a Sunday evening, it wasn't quite so much. A lot of things came together there for it to be not as bad as it could have been, but oh my goodness, it was bad enough for us. It
0: was still devastating enough. Um, yes. Yeah. EF5, th- there's not that many EF5s. Uh, sometimes there's none in a year. Um,
1: yeah. Yeah. From um, so what I've heard is, is basically, you know, roughly 1,220 those a year. You guys know this. Way less than one half of one percent of them will ever be an EF5. Mm-hmm. And of all the EF5s that we've got recorded, we basically have Oklahoma City, Greensburg, Kansas, and Joplin, Moe.
0: Yeah. Right there in the the the, the tornado center, <laughs> you know?
1: Imagine that. Yeah. It's the tornado triangle. Yeah,
0: yeah, and we. It is.
1: It's the tornado triangle.
0: We, we have a lot of people. I mean, uh, a, a, a vast majority of the people who are not really weather savvy. You know, they hear tornado and they really freak out, and the first image that they have in their mind is it's going to be a devastating tornado like Joplin, and we you know we try to tell them we never ever downplay tornadoes but when you get these little frontline spin up things the chances of you yeah. getting hit by one of these little spin ups is very 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 small
1: yeah they don't occupy a very big spot on the face of the earth it
0: exa- exactly you know but but you know, the people that aren't really, like I said, savvy, they <laughs> just think all of a sudden there's going to be this wave of tornadoes coming through. And was like, no, no, there, there's a chance.
1: <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah so, I had an industry here that transferred a bunch of people. It was a food distribution industry. They transferred a bunch of people out of California to Joplin to occupy a new distribution center that they had. So their manager called up and said, could you come out and talk to our people from California? They're scared to death of tornadoes. Right, right. And I said, yeah, I said, said, okay, these are people that are used to the ground undulating under them, and they claim it's no big deal. That, that's what I was oh, going to say. Right. If I went to California, <laughs> yeah. I
0: would be freaked out. Why is the earth moving? Yeah. Oh, it's just an earthquake. No big yeah. deal. You know?
1: <laughs> it's just an earthquake. It's okay. It's okay. Yeah. yeah leave them over. <laughs> Don't worry about it. It's okay. You know? And so, you know, I went out and talked to them, and we had a, we talked about security and sheltered in place and time of day for storms and handed them out some literature and hopefully kind of helped their angst a little bit. But the biggest thing that I, we were dealing with was just that internal perception uh, it it's the big one every time it happens. And as you know better than I, that's almost never the case. Right. I've told right. people that if we had another EF5 in Joplin, and if I were still working here, I would do two things. The first thing I would do is respond, because that's what I get paid for. Mm. But the second thing I'm going to do is go buy lottery tickets. <laughs> yeah, because it shouldn't have happened.
0: It, 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 yeah. yeah, it's that one in a million
2: chance that, that something's going to happen. Well, in my opinion, if anything, good came from may 22nd 2011 is that now more people seem to heed the warnings more than they did before uh they pay more attention to the weather and i think well i think it scared them and and, and maybe that's a good thing because people didn't take the warnings as seriously as they do now back then
1: No, that's exactly right. They did not. And I'll be honest, part of that was emergency management's fault. We used to test the sirens every week. And one of the things that people told us after the Joplin tornado was, well, we didn't really think it was real because you guys set those things off all the time.
0: That's the normalization problem. You're right. I I totally get that.
1: Yeah. So several of us in emergency management in southwest Missouri got together and wrote an area-wide policy over when we were going to test our sirens, how often we're going to test them. We now only test them on the second Wednesday of each month at 10 o'clock, weather permitting.
0: Yeah, I was going to say like, like once people, a month now.
1: Yeah, once a month. now. What we, We're we able to have our sirens are electronic, and they have uh, uh, radios in them. So we actually do an internal silent test at 6 o'clock every morning to tell me if electronics work. But you still have to rotate them and as, as sound them to know if the sound boards actually work.
0: Ah. But we,
1: we tell people, so we tell people, if the sirens are going off and it's not the second Wednesday of the month at ten o'clock in the morning, you need to go seek shelter.
0: That, exactly, that's perfect, and and it's smart that you don't that that they're not fired. It, it like in severe weather. I mean, that's that's perfect. Yeah. So so uh, just so everybody knows, are you the ones the emergency manager's office? Are you the ones that actually push the button for the tornado sirens?
1: Well, yes. Uh, actually, what I do is is I, I do that through uh, the dispatch center, uh, basically because I don't really want to create a failure point. In other words, you can't set the sirens off unless Keith is here.
0: That's oh, right. not good.
1: So we have a standing policy that if there's a tornado that has a path that includes the city of Joplin or a windstorm with winds in excess of 75 miles an hour that has a path that includes the city of Joplin, they are authorized to set off the sirens. Uh, what I've learned is, is they need me around to say, no, uh, you know, like last night had somebody come up and say, uh, we have a report from a certified weather spotter. Okay. Whoever that is. Uh, right. Uh, that says that there's a storm with rotation just north of seventh range line. And I said, no, don't turn them on. I'm watching the radar. I'm talking to weather service. I'm looking to see what's on TV. I'm sure there's rotation. Practically all of these strong storms have rotation. Oh it's yeah. Not and they said, okay. And then of course, uh, at uh, Monday night, uh, we set the sirens off for one that came through. I was listening in, and about the time that I heard the warning go off from the National Weather Service, I was grabbing my radio to tell dispatch to turn on the sirens. They already had them going. Oh, really? I said, Good for you. Yeah. Another thing that we have done, and I fully support that, that is, you know, that's per the policy, and that's exactly what they need to be doing. What happens if he's on vacation? What happens if he's sick?
0: Exactly.
1: not paying attention. What happens if I'm just not paying attention and I'm worried about something else? Uh, the other thing that we've done with the world of electronics is we now have remote activation. So oh. I can actually activate. I can activate the sirens from my cell phone. Wow. As can the fire chief. And uh, in fact, uh, with online, you can dial in from anywhere in the world, and and do a siren activation if you need to. So there's that additional backup that indeed dispatch is, you know, what if they're distracted? What if they're overwhelmed? Those 911 calls come all the time. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, a couple of minutes can make all the difference. If it turns out they're they're swapped, okay, I'll just get out my phone and push the button. I can do it from here.
0: I, I just – technology is so amazing nowadays, you know, and especially, especially with yeah. the velocities on radar. I mean – Corey and I both are just—we're always glued to those velocities. And man, there were some intense velocities going on last night.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, and, and I'd appreciate it if you could kind of give me some ideas to what kind of speeds we're actually looking at. <laughs> you
0: know, yes, I, yes.
1: I, uh, maybe this this is a little maybe this is a little bit too geeky, but I don't know how much time we have. But I was talking to the—I uh, was at the Storm Prediction Center a couple of years ago. And uh, was visiting with some people there, and they were talking about the EF scale. And they said, you know, there's not really anybody in charge of the EF scale. It's some volunteer meteorologists that look after that. And they said, we don't really know how what the speeds are for some of these winds that come through. Um, you know, dropping tornado, 205 miles an hour. Uh, we had a university that did some research. At 205 miles an hour, you can lift bumper stops out of uh, out of the pavement on parking lots, so that's and that happened to us. So that's kind of the, the mark. But you know, you've seen down in uh, Oklahoma. There's been some statements uh, where they were showing Doppler radar inside of a tornado, uh, wind speeds in excess of 300 miles an hour somewhere up off the ground. So right. who knows what the speed is at ground level, as opposed to 30 meters, as opposed to 300 meters, as opposed to 3,000 meters. And that's always been fascinating to me to see that kind of uh, a statement there and then try and correlate that to damage on the ground
0: yeah as it translates uh, from upstairs and when on, yeah. on the drop, yeah on the drop down
1: and and, and from a, from an emergency management standpoint if it jumps over my particular jurisdiction i don't care what it was an ef0 or ef5 didn't touch us mm-hmm. if it touches down i have great interest in what it was exactly. in terms of its size and destructive. And so it's difficult to correlate that speed of, of, and not only just the speed of the wind, but also the speed of the movement of the tornado. There's indications in, in the Joplin tornado that that thing slowed down to as low as 20 miles an hour. And so it That's basically, right. you know, they're normally around, what, what, 55 plus or minus, something like that. And I've uh, seen them as low as 35. This one slowed down to like 20 and just ground its way. Yeah,
0: I think that's what Gary Gary Bandy was talking about that last time. It's like yeah. this thing and it just yep. set there and and we yeah. we had a, a leap uh, leap Day tornado here in Joplin, Branson. It, Branson. In, in Branson. Sorry, <laughs> in Branson. Uh, what year was that, Corey? Was that twenty year later, twenty twelve? 2012. In, in twenty twelve, 2012. but that thing yes. was going forward speed seventy miles an hour. It, so it, the yes. damage was not near as great as it could be if that thing was only going forty miles an hour. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, if we would had a seventy mile an hour EFI, we wouldn't be having near. We wouldn't have near the damage.
0: Exactly. Uh, same exactly. thing. Yeah. Well, well, Keith, before we go, I got to ask you one one more question. Um, sure. Uh, like, uh, you're the emergency manager for Joplin. Do you? What is your jurisdiction? Do you have uh, <laughs> like yeah. all over the place, or?
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, in the state of Missouri, every every political subdivision is required to have an emergency management function or contract. You're saying. So I am employed as the emergency management director for the city of Joplin. Mm-hmm. The city of Joplin has a contract with the county of Jasper for me to provide emergency management services to the county government. That said, each political subdivision, city, town, fire department, fire district, sorry, within the county, also has, generally speaking, has somebody that's designated as the emergency manager. Usually it's like a fire chief or a police chief or a uh, the head of a, a particular volunteer organization that acts in a um, part-time, and oftentimes, no time paid position. Mm. So I'm the only full-time paid emergency manager in the county. So the advantage for that is, is is people will call up and say, hey, this FEMA form came through. What do I do with this? I said, I've already got one filled out. Let me send you my copy. Uh. And you can just change the, change the information on it. Uh, you know, we have a local emergency operations plan. Uh, my point is, why should each individual city have an individual plan? Let's just have a county plan. You can have a chapter in it that particularly applies to your city, and then you only have to keep up the one for your city. You don't have to keep up the whole county.
0: That makes sense. Uh, yes.
1: Yeah, yeah. So that's 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 what I do there. And honestly, from a authority standpoint, nah, nah. there is no real uh, authority per the Chapter 44 of the Missouri Revised Statutes. The senior elected official of the jurisdiction having authority, i.e. the mayor or president of the council or whatever, is liable for emergency response, he or she may delegate that authority, but he or she may not delegate the liability. Gotcha. So it behooves the senior elected official to have somebody on site that they trust that can take care of that particular situation, but you really need to make sure that your political uh, people are involved in any kind of this response and recovery because ultimately it's going to come back to them.
0: Exactly. It, it, yes. Oh. Boy, you've got a fantastic job and you said you've been doing this for 26 (laughs) years
1: Twenty-six years. Yeah, started over in Kansas and then came over here.
0: Well, I yeah. tell you, you are so highly respected, and I am so excited that you uh, agreed <laughs> to come on the podcast. I mean, I mean, we well, th- 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 our whole series is is focusing on you know remembering Joplin, but it's not just that the disaster; it's the rebuilding and the positive aspects that come out of it. And and you, yes. you you've just helped us totally understand how much positive work that you do to help the citizens after a disaster. It's actually any disaster, not just the the Joplin tornado, but that was pretty major.
1: Excellent point. And please, excellent point. Honestly, uh, and I say this with all due respect, um, in my world, the type of disaster is not as important as the recovery efforts afterwards, because the recovery efforts are almost always the same. Be
0: it flood,
1: fire, you know, uh, any type of an explosion or whatever, it's still people, it's still it's still uh, property, it's still a legal portion of things. And once that boom is over with, it's all pretty much the same operation, no matter where you are.
0: Yeah, and organized—that's like what you're saying. you're, you're pulling from.
1: Is yeah, yeah. yeah, other it's people who've done this key. before. It makes all the difference in the world. Uh, we have incident support teams throughout the, the state of Missouri. That if you're overwhelmed, you can call for one, and they'll come and help with the planning and the logistics and the organization of your finances, so you can spend your time running operations. It's called pre-organizing. It's pretty neat.
0: Pre-organizing, and and uh, yeah. people what should concept? learn from that. That it, it works. Yeah, what <laughs> you're going to do something that works. Corey, you got anything else you want to ask Keith? Uh,
2: I don't think so. I, I just appreciate for him for talking to us for so long. Yeah, this especially is, on this is a day awesome. after oh, yeah. his. county was in the tornado warnings on that
1: I've got a standard slide set that I do, and I've spoken on it for 20 minutes, and I've spoken on it for three hours. Oh, (laughs) uh, yeah, There's lots of stories to tell about it, but I think you really have hit many of the main core themes, uh, particularly from the world of emergency management. And my hat's off to you for being perceptive enough to ask those questions.
2: I I wonder how many interviews you've given since that day.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, uh, to be honest, uh, in the 36 months after the Joplin tornado, I spoke about the tornado 289 times in those 36 months. Wow. Uh, that was all venues, you know, television, radio. Uh, I'm amazed at the number of people that write news, that write articles or write books about disasters. They would come through, uh, did some stuff on social media, online, got a chance to go to Australia once and speak there. Oh, wow. Uh, do their emergency service. That was fun. That was a blast. And um about two hundred eighty nine times and that in that thirty six months, and then plus you know whatever else has happened since then, but it averaged out about twice a week
0: that is incredible, incredible. Yeah. do you sleep
1: oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah. More so than usual. I'm getting older here. So oh, well. uh, I find I find I value my sleep, and I tend to think, is that really something I need to worry about? To <laughs> no.
0: It's all there about was a perspective. Time i
1: jumped up and been all over it, but now I think, you know, it'll wait.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I'm getting
0: there too. Corey's younger than me. So, <laughs> but, I've, ah. but I've been getting there. Yeah. Yeah. We're, t- we we're tired too. We were covering this thing last night. But uh, again, Keith, my gosh. So glad you decided to to join us, and we encourage well,
1: thank you people. For I
0: appreciate it. yeah, I mean we encourage people uh, yeah. to to go visit Joplin they they've done Joplin has rebuilt in such a way with the new hospital in our in our second installment. Uh-huh. Uh, my sister in law Phyllis talked all about how they incorporated. Uh, some really cool, neat things into the new hospital from the... from the. Isn't uh,
1: that amazing? I was so impressed.
0: I got a chance to tour it, and I mean, seriously, yeah. you know, people... Go visit Joplin. I mean, the, uh, Joplin's yeah. a good place, and there's good people, and then they have rebuilt, so... Uh, yeah, we've
1: got lots of restaurants and hotels, so yeah, we'd love to have you. <laughs> oh, yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, what's yeah. the population of Joplin? Well, that's
1: interesting. By day... I'm sorry, we sleep 50,000 people by night. Okay. But in the daytime, we have a quarter of a million people in town. Well, that sounds kind uh, of like Branson. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, it's exactly. Uh Two major hospitals, uh, a lot of industry, uh, a college, uh, a lot of medical facilities, uh, other than just the hospitals. Uh, we, we say you can see the headlights coming into town in the morning and the taillights leaving at night. <laughs> and, uh,
0: no, that's great because in Branson we've got ten thousand people, but we have millions, four, oh. five, six million because we're the tourist, you know, tourist town here. So it's 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 pretty amazing to, yes. to play the license plate oh. game, you know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I bet it is. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, that would be pretty interesting.
0: Yes, well, Keith, keep up the good work again. Thanks for wrapping up this our, our pod series on remembering Joplin, and we thank you.